This morning as we continue our way through Luke's gospel, as has been read for you, an important aspect that we need to keep in mind each and every time that we come to the gospels, whether that, again, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, is the central focus is the fulfillment of God's Old Testament promises to His people. So as you look at the Gospels, they're emphasizing what God has stated and the promises He has made in the Old Testament text of Holy Scripture to the church under the Old Covenant and how in Christ He is keeping or fulfilling those promises and pledge. Significant, of course, and immediate application is each and every one of us in the moment is reliant upon God's trustworthiness in the keeping of His promises. Of course, we are all trusting in Christ, resting upon Him as the sole means of redemption and salvation. We are trusting that God will uphold, indeed, that promise and that pledge to deliver each and every one of us whose faith rests solely upon Christ alone. This is significant as each gospel writer attempts to write for us a way that, indeed, we can be confident in God's covenant-keeping promises. But as each gospel writes about promises fulfilled, each one presents Jesus in different lights. So whether you're reading Matthew or you're flipping over to John, you'll see indeed the same Jesus, the same Christ, but demonstrating Him to be in a different shade or color, emphasizing different aspects of His works, calling to mind certain parts of His sermons leaving out other aspects. So we'll see here with Luke as he speaks of a sermon with Christ, leaving particular aspects out that may appear somewhere in Matthew. Why? Because each gospel writer is pointing to the reliability of Christ as Savior in a particular way unto a particular audience. So they have specific strategies in mind. Here, as we deal with Luke this morning, as we're getting ready to deal with the rest of 6, so we'll go from 12 all the way to 26, but not just this morning. Here we're going to begin, however, to deal with verses 12. And what is Luke presenting here about Jesus? What are we beginning to see? We're beginning to see Jesus presented as an end-time prophet. In other words, we're beginning to see Luke present our Lord as a second Moses, if you will. What do I mean exactly as a second Moses? Surely you're familiar with the first Moses and his call to lead Israel out of Exodus and to bring them toward the promised land. He also ascends to the mountain of Sinai and receives the word of the Lord. He then returns as he descends and teaches and instructs the people, both in blessing and in curse. This Luke has on his mind as he is writing chapter 6. Again, if I could draw your attention a little more clearly, what is it that Luke is presenting about our Lord here? He is presenting him, beginning in verse 12, as an end time or last Moses. Listen to this text as I read for you, Deuteronomy 18.18, where God is speaking Again, significant here is that each gospel writer is focusing on God keeping His promises. Deuteronomy 18, 18, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it for you. As God is speaking about His intentions to fulfill His promises to His people. Quote, I will raise up for them a prophet like you 
from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I have commanded him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of them. Deuteronomy 18.18, speaking of this end-time prophet who is to come. If you would, turn over to Acts chapter 3, just at the beginning here, to see just how significant is this Deuteronomy 18 prophecy. We could also go into John's gospel. We won't for a moment, but we could go to John's gospel as well. If you recall the situation where the woman meets Jesus at the well, and she says to him, I perceive that you are a prophet. And then she runs into the village to tell the village folks who she saw, who she just interacted with at the well. And she says, I have met the prophet who told me everything that I had ever done. This is significant. They draw immediately upon, is this the Christ? How significant is Deuteronomy 18.18? Again, we'll see in Luke 6. If you're with me in Acts 3, again, I'll begin um, reading in verse 17. If you have time in Acts 3, you can go on and see kind of what's developing here prior to it. But for time's sake, I'll jump in at verse 17, and you can follow along with me. Again, focusing on just how significant is God's promise for an end-time prophet, Moses-like figure in whom we can rely. Well, here Peter is speaking, verse 17 of Acts chapter 3, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Now, if you're with me in verse 22, look at how significant this is for Peter's preaching. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me. From your brothers, you shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, notice who he he draws attention to here in this end-time prophet, God having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Again, as you see here, the end-time prophet of Deuteronomy 18, of what is proclaimed in the events of Acts, is indeed Jesus Christ. He is like Moses. 
and that He does appear to the people of God and provide the very words of God to us. He is also, as Luke takes pain to make sure that we are sure of His birth, He is raised up from among the brethren. But as we see going throughout from His birth, throughout His ministry, He is very unlike Moses as well. He is so unlike Moses, different than Moses, that He will bring His people through not another exodus event, but He will bring His people through a final exodus event. And He, unlike Moses, will bring us not to another earthly land, to another earthly sanctuary, but He will bring us to a heavenly one. By way of His exodus, He will bring His people to a true and final heavenly promised land. This is what is on the mind of the book of Luke Acts. This is a theme that we see established and beginning even here in the first portions of Luke chapter 6. So if you'll go with me back to Luke chapter 6 as our primary text this morning to see exactly how this text is developing as we move past the Sabbath controversies. And now we're joining to verse 12 and we have on our mind this theme of what Luke is beginning to develop here about our Lord who is the fulfillment of that end-time prophet. If you just see in your text of Scripture, just briefly by way of introduction, you see the first section there, beginning in verse 12, is this mountain experience. Okay, in these days he went out to the mountain to pray. And then from this uh, prayer throughout the night, he then makes a decision. As he makes this decision of picking the apostles, of which we're about to develop in just a moment, you'll notice the next section in your text. So from the, from the mountaintop prayer, he then descends in verse 17, and he begins to speak to the people the word of God. Then you'll notice down of what we'll cover next week, and that is verse 20 through 24. There are, just like Deuteronomy... Just like with Moses, there are four blessings pronounced, and there are, correspondingly, four curses pronounced. This, if you recall, is a structure in Deuteronomy where the people of God gather to hear the Word of God, the contents of the covenant life. And you remember, in the end of Deuteronomy, there is a structure to that covenant life. There is a way to be blessed in covenant life. And there is correspondingly a rejection of the covenant, a way to endure and experience cursing. So if you put all these pieces back together in this theme that Luke is developing for us, as we saw already preached yet again significantly in the very beginning portions of the book of Acts, we have our Lord praying all night, receiving the words of God descending and instructing and teaching, and then the structure of that teaching, indeed, mirroring that of Deuteronomy. This is significant, not just because it's a neat piece of unity of the Bible, but because each one of us rests upon these truths, that God keeps His promises, that what He pledges, He will so surely fulfill. That's why they appear in Acts and preach it with great fire and anxiety, encouragement, admonishment, warning. 
because it's so significant, not because it's neat. Isn't it neat that he mentioned in Deuteronomy 18 that somebody would come and it kind of looks like this is probably him? But that God keeps his promises, every last one of them. And so the heart that is set upon Jesus for deliverance, as God has pledged, so surely will he fulfill. This is the story of Luke Acts. If I could just for a few moments then show you this sense of final exodus and safe heavenly dwelling just by way of introduction through Luke chapter 6. I want to show you how Luke begins to paint this portrait of our Lord as that great end time prophet here receiving instruction, delivering it to the people. And next week we'll look, as I said, to the delivering of the instructions and the four blessings and the four curses. But if I could draw your attention higher in the text just this morning to consider first how we see this great theme emerging of God's promises made and God's promises kept, we see number one, it is established through the constructing of a renewed Israel, the constructing of a renewed Israel. This is exciting. Look with me in verse 12 and 13. In the text here we read, in these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter and Andrew, his brother, James and John and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon, who was called the Zealot and Judas, the son of James and, yes, Judas Iscariot, who Luke then provides for us, who became a traitor. Interestingly to note, as they chronicle the choice or they list the names of who our Lord picked to be his apostles, everywhere you find this list, Judas Iscariot is always listed last. Interestingly to note as well is Peter is always listed first. But our point here is we draw attention to our Lord gathering. I will make one small notation. Once again, as we consider the significance of the role of prayer. I was talking with someone here uh, last week, and and it was noteworthy about how much we look at the text of Scripture and we see those who knew the sovereignty of God and the human responsibility components. You know how many of us, we wrestle with that, right? Human responsibility, divine sovereignty, where do they work, how do they work themselves out, which one comes first, how do we, and it kind of is confusing. That can kind of cause some to not pray, to not meditate, because kind of they can take that approach that what will be, will be. Of course, we know that to be disobedient, but oftentimes we can easily go that direction with it. We would submit from this text very clearly, no one knows better the role of human responsibility and divine sovereignty than the Lord Jesus Christ, certainly displaying for us the significance of our life of prayer. Again, we've already seen it developed from earlier in the book of Acts that our Lord is a man of prayer. How much more that we would consider the need for prayer in decision-making. So before he makes the decision of who is going to be the apostle group that will go forward and take the gospel to the ends of the earth, what does he do? 
spends the entire night in prayer. Those two things are related, by the way. His prayerfulness and then his decision-making. So as to once again instruct us in the correspondence between good, sound, godly decision-making and prayerfulness and dependency. Back to the text as far as what's being developed here in the core of a renewed Israel. You'll notice in the passage of verse 12 or verse 13, when the day came, after his night of prayer upon the mountaintop experience, he called his disciples. Now, notice the disciples at this point in time is a larger crowd. It's not what we might consider. Isn't the disciple, the disciple group the apostles? Well, notice there is a larger crowd at this point in time. So he calls a larger crowd of those who are already committed to following him. And he calls his disciples, and out of that group, he then goes along and he chooses 12 of them. Out from that dedicated group, out from those who have already received his word and pledged in following him, tracking his ministry, learning and growing, praising and worshiping, he picked out from that crowd 12 whom he then named apostles. Interestingly here, maybe we let this point go by, consider with me. At the point here is not that he formed, once again, disciples for the very first time. Rather, the emphasis here out of all of the disciples is upon the choice of 12. Why is it only 12? Why wasn't it 13? Why wasn't it 8? Why wasn't it 9? So on and so forth. Why Twelve. Is there, is there something significant about there being twelve out of the number? Well, consider that these twelve men, as we look at the rest of the New Testament and on into the epistles, particularly as we consider once again the book of Acts, these twelve men are the New Testament counterpart to the twelve tribes of Old Testament Israel. You see, it isn't haphazard, it isn't happenstance. It isn't just he liked the twelfth one and thought, I'll take a twelfth. All right, you look pretty good over there. We'll take you two. These twelve men are the New Testament counterpart to the twelve tribes of Old Testament Israel. You recall God's calling of the twelve tribes of Israel who were descended from the twelve sons of Jacob whom God would perform his wondrous deeds through and display to the nations his plan for redemption. So here our Lord chooses 12 men. And these 12 men, this, you know, one person draws an analogy that What is our Lord doing here? He was asking kind of a question in one of the books, and he's asking, what is the question here of what our Lord is doing? Well, it's kind of like a playground scenario where you go out and you pick teams. And here is Jesus on the playground picking a team, and it's clearly he's picking an all-Israelite team. And he's picking 12 of the best, even though by our standards we might not have perceived them as, yeah, the best. But you see, 
according to our Lord's sovereign purposes, he chose these particular 12 men, naming them apostles as the core of his renewed Israel. And this renewed Israel, these men, these apostles, whom he would train, whom he would teach, whom he would pray with, will be sent out as the starting point for what God's redemptive purposes in the earth are going to do. Once again, how do we know this is the case? This significance of picking these 12 men, indeed naming them apostles. Once again, I would draw your attention, this is the story of the book of Acts. If we wondered what happened with these 12 men, once we go through the Gospels and we arrive at Luke's part two, remember Luke and Acts work together. So you have part one really on a two-volume set. And so what Luke has here, we see concluded over here in the book of Acts in the Acts of the Apostles. But what happens in the book of Acts, as I already read for you, one of the first sermons, chapter three, deals with this end-time prophet whom God promised would come. And then from that we see as Jesus ascends in Acts chapter 1, leaving the disciples there, they are to do what? As that core group who is picked, as God's renewed Israel, they are to take his word from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Take what I taught you. Take what I preached to you. Take my power with you. And take the proclamation of my gospel to the ends of the earth. Is that what they do? Well, even Acts indicates indeed it is what they do. By the time you get to the middle of the book of Acts, they're taking the gospel beyond Judea and Samaria to the other ends of the earth or the utter ends of the earth. You see Asia and Greece. This is the work of the apostles. This renewed Israel. This core team that he is picking here. By the time you get to the end of the book of uh, uh, Acts, you see Paul's voyage to Rome. From Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, Asia, Greece, and Rome. God is here picking the New Testament counterpart to the twelve tribes of the sons of Jacob through whom he will start His plan to renew all things through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. One author captures this scene very well of what is being developed here in the book of Luke. He says, quote, It is clear that Jesus is saying, I am building the new people of God. And I am going to take them into the promised land. Just like Moses led the 12 tribes of Israel into the promised land, so also I'm building the new people of God. Not only from a remnant of Israel, but from the Gentiles. From every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation. Men, Women, boys, girls, all of them trusting in me. I'm going to lead each and every one of them 
into the promised land. Particularly here in Luke, in this passage that we are with, with these sent ones, these apostles, jump down into verse 17, and you kind of see their internship. You kind of see their beginning. Here he descends, our Lord descends, as he picks these 12 as the nucleus, as the beginning, as the starters on the basketball team for whom he will work through and with them to the spread of his gospel. As they come down and they are with him, in verse 17, they begin this this apprenticeship with him. They're chosen, they're excited, they're sitting. And what happens, verse 17, he came down with them and stood on a level place. So as he descends, there's some sense of, you know, they're still up high, but they've they've come down where there's a plain and people can be with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people. Here you see now as the, as, as the um, you know, team Israel looks out, that is the disciples with Jesus, they look out, to whom does this gospel go? Here is an indication as Luke begins to develop for us, here's where the gospel goes. This is unto whom the gospel is to go. A great crowd of disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came from him and healed them. Here particularly you see, to whom does the gospel go? Is it, uh, is, it, is it unto Israel alone? Is this the proclamation of the kingdom of God? Is this the glory of the gospel that it go to Israel alone? But no, immediately, right off the bat, here even, the apostles learn that the gospel goes to all the nations by the inclusion in the text with the seacoast of Tyre in Sidon. That is, this crowd that is gathering is from all over Israel. But with the inclusion of Tyre and Sidon, they're also from well outside of Israel. If you were to look at kind of a a biblical map, and some with study Bibles, it it might be even larger, so it might include where Tyre and Sidon is. But Tyre, the seacoast, is well north. I I don't know by miles. You'd have to kind of do the the thumb and finger and measure it out and do your, you know, whatever your key in the Bible is. But it's got to be somewhere near 90 miles, more north of that. These folks are traveling to come and hear the Word of God preached from the mouth of Christ to see His gracious power on display, not just because they're Jews, but this is the gospel going to the nations. Sidon is even further north of Tyre. And that's why I say in some of the Bible, in the back maps, uh, Sidon's not included. It's just, it's further north. By the time you get to Luke chapter 10, you see these two places referred to as clearly Gentile because he speaks a woe to one particular land and says if these deeds were done in these two spots, Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. In other words, there's some bad things going on down in there. And here they appear to desire the word of the Lord and the gospel goes to all the nations. Here the apostles learned this. 
And this is the formation of their ministry. Now, there's a couple of aspects, or, or should I say there are many aspects here that we can draw upon, many themes that are emerging here in this text. But for the last just few moments together, I want us to particularly focus on maybe one particular aspect of which will be developed throughout the rest of the Gospel of Luke. But let me kind of paint the picture this way. If indeed we have a focus on the building of a new people of God, the formation of the nucleus of this team who will then begin to take the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. Let's put them here. And then we have, on the other hand, Christ's pledge to bring them indeed to the heavenly promised land. On the other hand, peoples, land, And we draw back to that Deuteronomy theme. There stands there a need for a bridge to be built between the peoples and the land. That is, if I could put it this way, the building of a new people and a bringing them into the promised land requires an exodus event. Here's the peoples, Tyre, Sidon, Jerusalem, Judea, all of the peoples, Asia, Greece, Rome. Here's the peoples. Here's the promise. How do said peoples receive the promise? There is, it stands at the center, a need for the peoples to experience an exodus. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. They need an exodus. I will put my words in his mouth. He will speak to them all that I have commanded him. Here indeed, verse 18, who came to hear him speak. He will speak to them all that I have commanded him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name. I myself were required of them. There's a need for the peoples. To draw them to the promised land requires an exodus event. Let me ask you this question, or maybe you're asking it. Hopefully we're all asking it together. At least now that I read it, we kind of are. Where do we see Jesus perform such an exodus event for his peoples? Where do we see the great prophet of our God who was raised up like his brethren, much like Moses, but indeed far greater, perform such an exodus event for the sake of his peoples that he might bring them into the promised land? This is significant for Luke because Luke frames what you would probably guess as an exodus event. He frames the cross of our Lord as an exodus event. Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, and we'll just briefly look at verse 28 through 31. 
this is significant to Luke, as what Luke is developing here of our Lord, who indeed is the fulfillment of God's promise. Simply, we can rely, folks, we can rely on His Word because He is the prophet that God had promised. He speaks God's Word. I will put my words on His lips. And He will deliver His people and bring them to the promised land. Luke frames all of this in the context of Exodus. Look at Luke 9, verse 28. 28. Here you're familiar with the uh, Mount of Transfiguration, as it is recalled, as our Lord is transfigured before Peter, James, and John. Here, jump in verse 28 and see as Luke frames it in this theme between Luke Acts. Verse 28, now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. There again, our Lord, that portrait of prayer. Verse 29, and as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke. Here's verse 31. Key in on this situation. Who appeared in glory and spoke of his The English translates it. I don't know all of your options that are out there right now between NIV, NAS, ESV, KJV, so on and so forth. Whatever the English version is that you possess at this point in time, it's probably translated departure. The the, the actual term, looking at the Greek text, the actual term is exodus. Luke framing this event as an exodus. Verse 31, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus. Now, now notice as the language moves from exodus, we know that it isn't simply a departure. That's a soft way of translation. It, It doesn't communicate the fullness of the meaning of the import of what Luke is describing. How do we know that? Look at the following clause, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Departure? It's not that tough unless maybe you're catching a flight to consider your departure an accomplishment. Here he speaks redemptively. You see, the use of the word exodus by Luke is not incidental, which is unfortunate in English translation. It's not incidental. We've lost something by referring to it as a mere departure. Who accomplishes a departure? It's not incidental that Luke chooses to use the term exodus. Rather, you'll notice that the central point of the conversation in the text between Elijah and Moses is about The Exodus. Interestingly, I note for you, there are two other Gospels as we speak of the synoptic Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew and Mark simply tell us, if you look at both of their transfiguration narratives, both of them simply tell us that Moses and Elijah appear in glory and spoke with Christ. Luke is the only one to tell us 
what they spoke about. And he chooses to express our Lord in the accomplishment and fulfillment of God's promises to us that Elijah and Moses were talking in front of Peter, James, and John about the great exodus that our Lord would perform to bring his people to the promised land. You see, consider the broader meaning of exodus just for a moment. If we take the Old Testament redemptive historical story, as that one children's Bible says, every story whispers his name. Well, then let's go back just for a moment and consider the Exodus moment. Consider what all took place in the Exodus. Indeed, that this was a type, and here is our Lord. It's anti-type. You recall, if I could draw your attention just briefly, that Jesus is the final prophet and deliverer of his people, that if your faith comes to rest solely upon him and to receive all of him, you, individual believer, you, each one of us whose faith resides and rests upon the Lord Jesus Christ and no one beside him, him and him alone, his promise to you as indeed the fulfillment of the prophet of old is that he will lead you safely through the waters of judgment as with Israel in the old covenant. He speaks of his own, as we get there someday to Luke chapter 12, he speaks of his own death as a baptismal event of judgment. Those whose faith rests upon him are led safely through the waters of judgment. He says to his apostles, are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I will undergo? No. Then let your faith rest upon me and receive of me, and I will lead you safely through the waters of judgment. Your faith that comes to rest in Christ, as we saw taught in the Old Covenant, to the church under the Old Covenant, we learned that in faith that rests in Christ, you are established in a greater covenant. Hebrews chapter 8, it expressly states, Jesus mediates a better covenant. We are fed, each one of us are nourished and fed with an everlasting manna. How so? Do you remember John 6, Jesus comes down and says, I am the manna of life. Our fathers gathered manna in the wilderness. Yeah, and they had to go out and gather it again. But whoever eats of my flesh will never be hungry again. I am the everlasting manna. To the one whose faith rests upon Christ alone and receives of him alone with no other, you will be nourished with life-giving Water. You remember the Exodus event? We're dying of thirst out here. Whose faith rests solely upon Christ as a fulfillment of God's promises. He says, whoever drinks the water that I will give him, he will never thirst again. Finally, in the Exodus theme, our Lord by passing through the flaming swords of the Garden of Eden. Through his death on our behalf, opens the door of access that those who rest upon him, trusting in his judgment, trusting in his substitute for our judgment, are welcomed into a heavenly 
eternal promised land. You see, Jesus is God's greatest and last prophet. He is the prophet, the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18 that Moses promised to the people of God for their good. Luke is eager to frame it here that we might receive it and understand it as such. As we'll see next week in the development of the Deuteronomy content, the words of blessing and the words of cursing. Jesus is God's prophet who has been raised up from among his brothers, who has spoken his word to us. And so it is to Jesus that each of us must listen. How do we do so? In conclusion, I simply want to provide four questions with four quick answers. How do we trust? How do we listen? By asking four questions just in this last final moment. Number one, what is this greater exodus that I am in need of? I must ask myself in heeding and hearing the word of the Lord, what is this greater exodus? I get the historical fulfillment. I get the exodus of Israel. They were drawn out from slavery. They were drawn out from Pharaoh and his enemies. They they, they were drawn out from, from, from beatings and mockings and scourgings and slave labor. I get that historical exodus, but what is the exodus that the Lord performs that I am in need of? And the answer is, We are in need of an exodus, each and every one of us who are born with original sin. Each and every one of us are in need of an exodus, a delivery from the tyranny of Satan, sin, and death. There is not one who is not born into slavery. Each is in need of this exodus. Number two, how can he deliver me? How can Jesus deliver someone like me? If I am in need of deliverance from the tyranny of Satan, how is it that he can deliver me? Subject to such sin as I am, participating in such sin, neglecting that which I ought to be doing, how could he deliver me? And the answer is this, by entering into your estate. This he did, born of a virgin, conceived of the Holy Spirit, He entered into your estate, endured your cross, suffered your judgment, destroyed your sin, and killed your death. This is how he can deliver you from your tyranny. Thirdly, where or when did he accomplish this? as we saw in Luke chapter 9, Luke makes clear he accomplished this in the first century in Jerusalem. He really was there. He really did offer his life for you. He really did die on a cross. Or as one author says, Jesus so accomplished such great a work, quote, on an ugly little hill just outside Jerusalem. Finally, how do I receive this deliverance? 
How do I receive it? I hear it. I can hear it right now being proclaimed for the very first time to my ears. I see my need. I see a Savior. How might I receive Him? By repenting of your sin, which is several. Failing to do that is required. Omitting those things that are required, pursuing those things that are forbidden. How do I receive such deliverance? By repenting of your sin and resting upon and receiving all of Christ as he has freely offered to you in this gospel. All are born in sin and captivity. All are in need of deliverance. Christ is the sole deliverer. Let your faith come to rest upon and receive all of Christ. He is freely offered to you in the gospel. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this text that we have here in Luke. We thank you for your word this morning that would nourish each and every one of us as we come together to receive of it, to drink of it afresh, to be rinsed and nourished, to be forgiven. Lord, I do ask for forgiveness of our sins together, all of us children of Adam. Brothers and sisters with Christ, as our faith has come to rest upon Him, but Lord, we continue as pilgrims to struggle against the flesh, to struggle against sin, struggle against Your law, to be lazy to do that which You require, rebellious to simply transgress and trespass Your law that we know. Father, forgive, cleanse, and renew. Set our faith yet again afresh upon your Son, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If there is one here who does not know you, Lord, through this word, effectually draw them, regenerate them by the grace of your Spirit. Give them repentance unto life. Let them rest upon Christ alone. In your name we pray, amen.